everybody. Welcome to episode 298 of The Virtual Couch. I'm your host, Tony Overbay, and welcome aboard. We're going to get started right away. I was sent an article, it was probably two or three weeks ago, and it was one that I've had on my mind quite a bit, and I have been wanting to get to this episode. It's an episode that we're going to talk a little bit more about happiness, and we're going to get to an acceptance and commitment therapy principle called the choice point. And the choice point is something that I have wanted to talk about for a very long time. And there have been so many times where I pulled up notes that I want to talk about with regard to choice point, and then I just get distracted and I think I will do it later. I literally do the concept of experiential avoidance. I kick the can down the road, but today the can is being kicked no longer because this is such an important principle. And I think it addresses this article that uh, a listener had sent me. So the article is from Psychology Today. And the article says, can wanting to be happy backfire? And the article is from Psychology Today, and it's by Emily Wilroth, a PhD. And it was posted back in April of 2021. And I love the subheading. It says, why wanting to feel happy might paradoxically lead you to feel less happy, which is something that I allude to in so many podcasts. And it really is a principle, a core principle underlying a lot of the things that I love about acceptance and commitment therapy. So if you haven't heard of acceptance and commitment therapy, or if it's been a little while, or if you hear me talk often about it, we're going to, we're going to dig in a little bit deep today and give you some of the principles of acceptance and commitment therapy, address this article on happiness, and then we're going to lead to this concept called the choice point. And by the end, your life will be changed. That's, that's all we're looking for today is a little bit of, of life-changing experiences around happiness. So the key points of this article are evidence suggests that the more you want to feel happy, the less happy you may actually feel, which I think for a lot of people that might actually normalize some things. They also say that a new paper explains why the paradox is not inevitable. And then uh, a third key point they point out is realistic expectations, effective strategies, and accepting both positive and negative emotions may be the keys to successful happiness pursuit. So Emily starts the article by saying most people do want to feel happy, but can wanting to feel happy backfire? In a recent paper titled The Pursuing Happiness, researchers at the University of California, Berkeley, and the University of Toronto explored this question. And evidence suggested that the more you want to feel happy, the less happy you may actually feel. And fortunately, the paradox, they say, is not inevitable. Many people who want to feel happy are successful at attaining their happiness goal. And in their recent paper, the researchers, Zerwas and Ford, suggest that how you pursue happiness matters. So I'm going to, needless to say, I'm going to read this article and I'm going to give my own thoughts on here. And then that will lead us into the conversation around acceptance and commitment therapy. She starts out immediately by saying how pursuing happiness can go awry. So Zerwas and Ford, and again, they are the researchers, proposed a three-stage model of happiness pursuit. First, people set a goal to be happy. Second, they engage in strategies to work toward their happiness goal. And third, they monitor their progress toward their happiness goal. And using this model, Zerwas and Ford identified how the pursuit of happiness can go wrong as well as it can go right. And I think right out of the gate, acceptance and commitment therapy in the book, The Happiness Trap by Russ Harris, he gives one of the best definitions, I think, of happiness, or there are two different definitions. So let me start by reading Russ Harris's definitions of happiness from the book, The Happiness Trap. So early on in the book, Russ has a section where he says, what exactly is happiness? He says, we all want it, we all crave it, we all strive for it. Even the Dalai Lama has said the very purpose of life is to seek happiness. But what exactly is it? So he has two definitions. He said the word happiness has two very different meanings. The common meaning of the word is feeling good. In other words, feeling a sense of pleasure or gladness or gratification. We all enjoy these feelings, so it's no surprise that we chase them. 
However, like all human emotions, feelings of happiness don't last. So no matter how hard we try to hold on to them, they slip away every time. And as we shall see, a life spent in pursuit of those good feelings is, in the long term, deeply unsatisfying. In fact, the harder we chase after pleasurable feelings, the more we are likely to suffer from anxiety and depression, which is part of this whole premise behind the happiness trap, that the harder we seek happiness, the more we may feel anxiety and depression. He says the other far less common meaning of happiness is living a rich, full, and meaningful life. When we take action on the things that truly matter deep in our hearts, when we move in directions that we consider valuable and worthy, when we clarify what we stand for in life and we act accordingly, then our lives become rich and full and meaningful, and we experience a powerful sense of vitality. And that use of the word vitality comes up often in acceptance and commitment therapy. But he says this is not a fleeting feeling. It's a profound sense of a life well-lived. And although such a life will undoubtedly give us many pleasurable feelings, it will also give us uncomfortable ones such as sadness and fear and anger. This is only to be expected because if we live a full life, we will live, we will feel the full range of human emotion. And I loved that definition the first time that I read it because if you really step back and look at it, that even the things that we do feel should make us happy and bring us happiness or joy sometimes don't. And when that happens, what do we do? We typically then say, what's wrong with me? I can't even be happy in a situation where I really want to be happy. So we have a, just a variety of thoughts and feelings and emotions that are happening constantly, going through our minds, going through our heads. And what do we do with those thoughts and emotions and feelings? We typically are pretty judgmental of ourselves for the thoughts we have, the feelings we have, or the emotions that we have, or the things that we do, when in reality, we have so many thoughts and emotions that why do we give such significance to certain ones and not to others? So back to the article, I, I hope that sets the stage that are we even pursuing the quote, right version of happiness? Are we simply just looking for pleasurable feelings or are we starting to figure out who we are, what really matters to us, and then taking action on those things that matter? And I feel like if you start to just take a look at what your personal definition of happiness is, then that can, that can start to move the arrow in the, in the right direction on why someone may not feel as, as happy as they feel that um, they, they deserve or that they would like or that they, that they feel like life is supposed to be about. So back to the article, Zerowitz and Ford identified how the pursuit of happiness can go wrong as well as how it can go right. The first thing they said is setting a happiness goal. When setting a goal to be happy, expectations matter. Unrealistic expectations about the intensity or frequency of happiness can backfire. So they say, think about an event that you were really looking forward to. Maybe you thought to yourself, this is going to be the best night of my life. If that event was anything less than the best night of your life, you might have felt let down even if it was still a really good night. So desiring or expecting to feel extremely happy can make it more difficult to enjoy the level of happiness that you do feel. And I want to weigh in here, if you've been listening to some of the episodes on the virtual couch, or I did, I've done a lot of this over on my other podcast, Waking Up the Narcissism. I've been talking about the need for external validation, and it really has been a bit mind-blowing. And just this principle in general, that even if my if I want an event to bring me joy or happiness, am I not looking for that event to give me the external validation? And remembering that if you really break down what external validation looks like, it means that I may not be feeling great about myself, so I'm going to turn to someone else or something else to help me feel better. And that right there just was an aha moment for me where I realized 
that I'm not sure how I'm doing or I'm not sure how I'm feeling. So I want some other thing, person, event, whatever it is to make me feel better. So there are a lot of variables there. So if I'm not feeling good about myself or if I'm not coming into an event or a relationship with some confidence, then I am not even sure what I want the event to give me, this just just ambiguous term happiness, or I want a person to make me feel better, and they don't even know what to do or say or how to show up to make me feel that way either. So when you really are looking at, am I looking at external sources to make me feel better, then there's a big potential for people to, quote, let you down or events to not quite be what they were, rather than going into events saying, I am going to be as present as possible and I'm going to look for things that matter to me and, and I am going to try to just have this experience, whether I'm going to have this experience on my own or I'm going to have this shared experience with others, but I'm not going to be looking for that event or those other people to make me happy. So in the article, they say, similarly, it is unrealistic to expect to be happy all the time or in every situation. Sometimes it's okay to not be happy. In fact, research suggests that negative emotions such as anger and anxiety can be useful. And this is where I love to chime in and say, bless your brain's little pink squishy heart. Even things like anxiety are there in, in not just even in theory, in reality, they're there to protect you. Now, are they worrying about things that you most likely don't need to worry about? Yeah, that's probably the case. Our brains have been have evolved over however long to to worry about a lot of things that will most likely never happen as a way to protect us. And so we can thank the brain. That's part of what I love about mindfulness. I can note the thoughts and feelings around anxiety and I can be grateful that my brain is looking out for me, trying to do me a solid. But is it being as helpful as, as I've always thought it is? Not necessarily. So that's where I can invite some of my thoughts or feelings around anxiety to come along with me while I engage in new activities. Or anger, they go on to say, for example, anger can motivate people to fight injustice and anxiety can help people avoid threatening situations. So it's normal and it's healthy to experience a variety of positive and negative emotions. The, the second thing they identify is pursuing a happiness goal. So people use a variety of strategies to pursue their happiness goals, and some of those strategies are more likely to be successful than others. So unfortunately, people aren't always good at knowing which strategies will make them happy. So again, people are often just looking for things that they hope will make them happy. The article, that Emily says, consider how you spend your money. Research suggests that spending money on other people tends to make people happier than spending money on oneself, yet most people believe that spending money on themselves will make them happier. Similarly, spending money on experiences tends to make people happier than spending money on material things, yet many people believe the opposite. They will look for happiness in material things rather than in having shared experiences. So if we really don't know what will make us happy, the authors say that we're likely to choose the wrong strategies when pursuing happiness goals. So kind of back to that external validation, are we looking for things or other people or anything other than trying to find that happiness within? Are we looking for external sources to make us happy? So the research then suggests that engaging in positive activities such as exercising or pursuing personal Research suggests that engaging in positive activities, such as exercising or pursuing personally meaningful goals, it's very key, and building social relationships may be successful strategies to increase happiness. And then evidence-based therapy, such as cognitive behavioral therapy, and I love that they give a shout out to my favorite, and acceptance and commitment therapy can also be effective at increasing happiness and reducing suffering. So while scientific findings like those described here can point us in the right direction, 
The authors say that they can't necessarily tell us what strategy is best for every person in every situation. They go on to talk about how more research is needed to understand for whom and in what situations particular strategies are likely to increase happiness and how long those benefits are likely to last. But this is where I feel like as an acceptance and commitment therapy, as an ACT therapist, that it really, and that's why I love that they touched on that these meaningful goals and building social relationships, meaningful goals goals need to be based on what really matters to you. And I I talk often and often about what are your values? Because if you are just pursuing a goal that is not uh, bolstered up by one of your own personal values, then you're just trying to do something, taking a little bit of a shot in the dark and hoping that that will work out. Or if you are pursuing a goal that's based on a value of someone else or a value that you think that you are supposed to have, then in comes our old friend, a socially compliant goal. So if I'm doing something because I think I'm supposed to or that I have to, then we are more likely to not be as engaged in what that goal looks like. And if we are not as engaged, then comes a socially compliant goals, I don't know, best friend or arch rival, which is experiential avoidance. Because if I really don't care a lot, if I'm pursuing, and I go back to my days in the computer industry, I know I was trying to earn a living. I know I didn't know what I didn't know, but I just did not feel a passion like I do in doing therapy or podcasting or writing or any of these things. And so it was so easy to look for anything and everything else to do other than the fact of what I was in theory there to do, whether it was preparing for the next trade show or writing a press release or reaching out and trying to sell somebody software that I wasn't necessarily passionate about, then in those situations, it was really easy to find any and everything to do instead of what in theory is supposed to do. So when you really are pursuing a value-based goal or a value-based life, then you are far more likely to be engaged. Absolutely, you'll still get distracted and there will be other things that will come up. But when you notice that you are distracted or you notice that other things come up, it's a lot easier to get back on that path of productivity when you are living by a set of values that actually matter to you, that are things that are important to you. And the third point they make in this article is monitoring a happiness goal. An important step in goal pursuit is monitoring progress toward one's goal. But in the case of happiness, goal pursuit monitoring can backfire. If somebody finds that they are not as happy as they want to be, they might feel disappointed and feeling disappointed can sometimes be beneficial for goal pursuit because it can motivate people to try harder to reach their goals. So that makes sense, right? But this is a challenge I have had in working with goals. I I really have. And uh, I have a really good friend, Neil Hooper, that we have worked on some programs together. And uh, Neil and I have have done a lot of, we spent a lot of time talking about goals and setting goals and the importance of a value-based goal rather than just a checkbox goal. And and these, these researchers said that, again, feeling disappointed can sometimes be beneficial for goal pursuit because it can motivate people to try harder to reach their goals. But for happiness goals, negative emotions like disappointment are in direct competition with the goal to feel happier. So we need to then work off of a value-based goal. We need to find out really what does matter to us so that we will be more engaged in the pursuit of achieving a goal. And then the researchers say that accepting both positive and negative emotions rather than judging them as good or bad may help people avoid this paradox of being frustrated by not reaching their happiness goals. So Zerwis and Ford go on to, they, they conclude and say the future of research on the paradox of pursuing happiness. They say that they hope that their paper will guide future research on the paradox of pursuing happiness. For example, more research is needed to understand for whom happiness pursuit is most likely to backfire, as well as what 
what types of strategies and interventions might lead to successful happiness pursuit. And in the meantime, Zerwas suggests using this as an opportunity to consider what is working for you and what you might try to change about your happiness. They say, quote, some people might benefit from engaging in new activities that actually bring them happiness, whereas others might benefit from letting go of constantly evaluating whether they are happy enough, said Zerwas. And there is so much gold there where I feel like using this as an opportunity, if you are finding yourself thinking the old what's wrong with me story as you pursue happiness, then uh, note it and drop the rope of the tug of war on what's wrong with me. Nothing. You're human. And so we look at those thoughts and feelings and emotions that you're having. And I would venture a guess that there might be a chance that you aren't necessarily working off of your own personal values and that you're uh, trying to achieve happiness based on things that you feel should work. And again, nobody likes to be should on. And you need to find what really does matter to you and that, is, that begins a process. It really is a process of finding out what things matter to you and not the things that you've been told you should think about, you should care about, that you should worry about, and all of those other shoulds, because none of those are going to be very helpful. So let me jump into the acceptance and commitment therapy model. And I want to talk just a, briefly, I want to get to this uh, thing called a choice point that I alluded to at the beginning of this episode. So here's where I thought this was a nice tie-in. If you turn to, there's a book that I love called Act Made Simple, again by Russ Harris, and chapter one says the human challenge. It ain't easy being happy. So that goes right along with this article that we're talking about where Russ says life is both amazing and terrible. If we live long enough, we're going to experience joyful success and spectacular failure. I love that. Great love and devastating loss, moments of wonder and bliss and moments of darkness and despair. And the inconvenient truth, he says, is that almost everything that makes our life rich and full and meaningful comes with the painful downside. And unfortunately, this means that it can be hard to be happy for long. And he said, heck, it's hard to be happy for short. And the fact is that life is tough and it doles out plenty of pain for every one of us. And one of the main reasons for this is that the human mind has evolved in such a way that it naturally creates psychological suffering. So basically, if we live long enough, we're all going to experience a whole lot of hurt. And if uh, you listen to the episode that Nate Christensen and I, my, my associate, my wonderful associate who is open for business, who is available for clients if you're working here in California, but we talked about the way that the brain is wired to look for worst case scenarios, that it is its way to protect itself. And we gave this example that I thought was really fascinating where and we talked about how if you, primitive man, looked out over the plane and saw the book talked to, we were referencing a book called The Buddha Brain, and it referenced that if you saw this impala and it was um, down on the ground, out in the field, and if you went and, and got that impala, your whole tribe would eat and everyone would be joyous. But if you then see this lion that is off in the distance and it's starting to head over toward the impala as well, that our brain is wired to say, I will wait until I will experientially avoid this because I have one chance there to get it wrong. So if I go to get that impala and that lion kills me, then I will not be able to do anything. So we are going to, and that's some of the things that causes anxiety that, that put up these barriers that are protective measures that we are worrying just in case I go there and that if the lion gets me, then I've got one chance. So I'm going to probably think tomorrow I might have a better opportunity if that lion is gone. And we talked about how that has evolved into modern day, the way the brain can say, I will do the research paper later when I'm more rested or when I don't have as many things going on, or I will spend time with those that I care about when I've cleared some things off of my plate. So it's fascinating the way the brain has evolved to do this experiential avoidance, to put things off until later. And so we are, again, we're wired 
to really try to protect ourselves because the brain has evolved as a don't get killed device. Whenever I get to speak, I talk about this often, is that the brain in essence is not a feel good device. It is a don't get killed device. So if it's left to its own devices, that we are typically going to go down a path of the worst case scenario because that is a way to protect us. But in the modern world, that doesn't allow us to live a life full of meaning and purpose and connection with others, which in reality is what brings us more joy and more happiness. And the book, Act Made Simple, Russ Harris does say, what is ACT? And I'll give you a quick overview of that. He says, uh, we officially say ACT as the word ACT and not the initials ACT. And he said, ACT is a behavioral therapy. It's about taking action, but not any old action. It's about action guided by your core values. It's about behaving like the sort of person that you want to be. What do you stand for in life? What really matters deep in your heart? How do you want to treat How do you want to treat yourself? And how do you want to treat people in the world around you? And what do you want to be remembered for at your funeral? Which is a fascinating ACT exercise, which is uh, sounds a little bit um, too on the point or too cliched, but what do you want people to say at your funeral? And are you living in a way that gets you toward that goal? He said that act gets you in touch with what really matters in the big picture, your heart's deepest desires for how you want to behave and what you want to do during your brief time here on this planet. And you then use those values to guide and motivate and inspire you to do what you need to do. In the book, Act Made Simple, he goes into where did act come from and what's the actual aim of act. And I, I'm going to skip a little bit of that, but he says, in summary, the big challenges that we all have to face in life is A, life is difficult, and that B, a full human life comes with a full range of emotions, and those are both pleasant and painful, and that C, a normal human mind naturally amplifies psychological suffering. So if you find yourself going to the what's wrong with me, that's a scary uh, thing that I, I want to do or that I'm afraid of, then you're normal. It's absolutely part of the human experience. So what ACT tries to do is maximize this human potential for a rich and meaningful life by helping you clarify what really does matter and what's important to you. And that is clarifying your values and then using that knowledge of what your values are to guide, inspire, motivate you to do things that will enrich and enhance your life. And then it teaches you psychological skills, mindfulness skills that enable you to handle difficult thoughts and feelings effectively and engage in whatever you're doing to be as present as you can and appreciate and savor the fulfilling aspects of life. So he goes in and talks a little bit about why does ACT get a bad rap? And I think that one's kind of fascinating as well. One of those um, concepts is that people see ACT as complex because it is this nonlinear model of therapy that is based around these core principles and processes. And you can work with any one of them at any time with a session in a client. And if you ever hit a roadblock with one process, you can move on to another. So that non-linearity comes with the big upside. Uh, Russ said it gives you incredible flexibility as a therapist. And this is where we talk about this concept called psychological flexibility. And psychological flexibility is one of the greatest things that you can learn when it comes to your mental health or your well-being is that things don't have to be as rigid. Things aren't, we don't have a mechanistic view of the brain. One of the challenges of cognitive behavioral therapy, which is that your thoughts lead to your emotions, emotions lead to your behaviors, is that is a bit of this mechanistic model that if you just replace a thought, then it will lead to a different emotion and a emotion, different emotion will lead to a different behavior as if it is that simple or that cut and dried. But you can replace a thought, change a thought, and then have an experience happen and still have the same emotion and that will still want you to have the same behavior. So now you get to say, what's wrong with me? I changed my thought and my life didn't change for the better. And so 
the ACT model has so much more psychological flexibility built in where you are you have a lot of these different core principles that you can turn to in any situation so that you can continue to move toward the things that matter. So the, the six core processes of ACT, the first one is contact with the present moment. Be here, be here now. So contacting the present moment means um, flexi flexibly paying attention to our experience in the Russ Harris says it's narrowing, it's broadening, it's shifting, or it's sustaining your focus, depending on what's most useful. So this might involve consciously paying attention to your physical world around you, the smells, the sights, the sounds, or the psychological world within you. What are you thinking? What are you, what are the stories that your brain's telling? Noticing them, noticing that I am feeling angry, not that I'm angry, but check it out. I'm feeling angry. What's the story my brain's telling me? That I have been done wrong? Are we even arguing? Is that a true or a false statement? Maybe I have been done wrong, but is that a productive thought on allowing me to be as engaged in the moment or in the relationship as I need to be? So again, it involves consciously paying attention to the physical world around or the psychological world within us or both at the same time. And so once I notice that I'm thinking or I notice that I'm feeling, then that helps me get fully engaged in the moment, in the experience, rather than being caught up in my feelings, caught up in my emotions. So that contact with the present moment, be here right now, is something that can be practiced through mindfulness, but it is so powerful. That alone, and you can see how these six core principles of ACT can be, you can use them at any, and so you have so many tools to work from, not just change my thought. So the second one is diffusion, which is watching your thinking. Diffusion means learning to step back and separate or detach from our thoughts and images and memories. The full technical term, he says, is cognitive diffusion, but we usually just call it diffusion. And Russ Harris says, we step back and we watch our thinking instead of getting tangled up in it. We see our thoughts for what they are. They're nothing more or less than words and pictures. Think about that. You have so many words and pictures going through your mind at any given time. Why do we give such significance to certain ones at certain times? So when we see our thoughts for what they are, then these words and pictures, then we can hold them lightly instead of clutching to them tightly. And we allow them to guide us, but not to dominate us. I can't tell you how many times I come in nice and early before clients are here and I want to write or I want to record or I want to do whatever it is that I want to do, but then I will all of a sudden notice that I'm caught up in watching a YouTube video or I'll notice that I am reading emails, which is a wonderful thing, but it's not the goal, the value-based goal that I came in to do that morning. Like today, I have a consistent goal for the last five years of putting out a podcast on Monday or Tuesday morning. It's Tuesday morning right now. I have a client coming in at 6 a.m. and I have this podcast to record. And a couple of times this morning, I already had to notice that I was doing something different. And instead of beating myself up, I was able to say, oh, that's interesting. And then get right back to the present moment or the value-based goal of creating a podcast content. So that is that second principle of act. So we've got contact with the present moment. We've got diffusion, which is stepping back and watching your thinking. Check that out. And then acceptance, which he says is opening up. Acceptance means opening up and making room for unwanted private experiences, making room for thoughts and feelings and emotions and memories and urges and images and impulses and sensations. So instead of fighting them or resisting them or running from them, we open up and we make room for them. In the world of addiction that I work with, uh, one of the most powerful things that you can do is, is accept the fact that I'm wanting to act out. Notice it. Check it out. That's interesting. There's nothing wrong with me not beating myself up. This is the pattern that my brain falls into. Or when somebody finds themselves in, uh, alone and no one else around, that their brain may say, hey, it's time to, it's time to act out. And so just opening up, making room for that, noticing it, saying, huh, that is interesting. Not trying to fight it, not trying to say what's wrong with me, not trying to say you, you shouldn't think that or think this other thing, but just going, oh, that's a thought. And then inviting that thought to come with me while I do something that is more valuable or that is, is 
that is something that I really can derive a sense of meaning or purpose from. So when you learn to accept and accept thoughts and feelings and emotions, so instead of fighting them, instead of resisting them or running from them, making room for them, you allow them to freely flow through you to come and stay and go as, as they choose in their own good time, if and when this helps you to act effectively and improve your life. That acceptance is such an amazing thing that instead of the, I know I shouldn't think this, I love saying to a client, oh no, we need to reframe that and say, oh, check it out. Check out what I'm thinking. Or instead of saying, is it wrong for me to do this or think this, to just say, oh, check it out. My brain is saying that this is something to do. So that's interesting because then we can step back and get into this next piece, which is called self as context or the noticing self. So in everyday language, Russ says there's two distinct elements to the mind, the part that is thinking and the part that that is noticing. So usually when we talk about the mind, we mean the part of us that is thinking, that's generating thoughts and beliefs, memories, judgments, fantasies, plans, and so on. And we don't usually mean the part that notices or that aspect of us that is aware of whatever we're thinking or aware of whatever we're feeling or sensing or doing in any moment. And this is such a practice. And so I I forget at times, I neglect the fact that this takes uh, intentional effort to when you are feeling, when you feel angry, that is the moment to go, oh, I'm, I'm angry. So that I'm going to come back to the very present moment and I'm going to take a step back and notice that I'm feeling angry and notice that I am, you know, notice I am upset, notice that I am sad. And so instead of I'm sad, I'm upset, I'm angry, it's I'm noticing I'm sad, I'm noticing I'm angry. And that same concept can happen where even with things like depression or anxiety, it's I'm Tony, but I'm noticing that I'm feeling depressed instead of I'm depressed. And there's a lot of power there because there are so many times where we aren't necessarily feeling anxious or we aren't necessarily feeling depressed. So in ACT, the technical term for this is self as context. So we often don't explicitly label self as context with clients, but Russ Harris says, but if and when we do, we usually call it the noticing self or the observing self or simply the part of you that notices. Hey, next up is talking about values. And then there's one called committed action. But uh, speaking of values, I'm going to try and do a value-based goal of talking about things that I need to pay the bills, so to speak, the hosting charges, the the podcast content, head over to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch. If you are looking for the world of counseling, online counseling, it can be very difficult to find a good counselor, a good therapist right now. Again, I am grateful that the stigma around mental health is starting to dissipate after 15 plus years in this business and that people are starting to talk more openly about their mental health struggles and challenges. But the only negative part of that is it can be hard to find a therapist. And you can go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, get 10% off your first month's treatment, and you can use their um, assessment tool and assessment process to get on there, fill out some uh, questionnaire, and really talk about the things that you really are looking for help with. And they can point you in the direction of a therapist, a qualified licensed professional clinical counselor or licensed mental, licensed marriage and family therapist like myself who will be able to do email therapy, teletherapy, chat therapy, you name it, but they can be there for you and you can be talking with someone in as few as two or three days, which is phenomenal. If you don't like the fit of your therapist, it's easier than ever to just look for or ask for a new therapist with their uh, online um, portal, their dashboard. And again, go to betterhelp.com slash virtual couch, get 10% off your first month's treatment. And then while I'm right here, if you are looking to move away from, if you find yourself turning to things like pornography as a coping mechanism, 
and you want to get rid of that in your life, head over to pathbackrecovery.com. That program continues to just be one of my passions. We have weekly group calls. There's an online course that's uh, 40 videos, and it is just a really strength-based, become the person you always wanted to be kind of way. So pathbackrecovery.com. All right, so let's get to this other principle of ACT, which is values. Know what matters. Russ Harris says, what do you want to stand for in life? What do you want to do with your brief time on the planet? How do you want to treat yourself and others and the world around you? Values are desired qualities of physical or psychological action. In other words, he says they describe how we want to behave on an ongoing basis. We often compare them to a compass because they give us direction and guide our life's journey. And so I love the concept of that values are a sense of being and doing. And the more that I've identified my own core values, that I do have some go-tos, my value of authenticity, my value of curiosity, my value of a connection, my value of compassion, and that as you implement those in your life, that there are times where you may find yourself not feeling connected, not feeling a part of whatever it is you're trying to be a part of. And again, you notice it, you don't beat yourself up about it, and then you turn to a value-based action. I talked about on an episode a little while ago, being at the NBA Summer League over the summer with my uh, son-in-law and my daughter and my wife, and we had these great seats, and we're down, and we're watching basketball, and I love basketball, and I love my family, but after the second or third game, I just felt flat, and I noticed I was feeling flat, and instead of beating myself up about it, instead of telling myself, just think something else, or just do something, just to knock it off, I noticed it, and then I turned to a value of curiosity. I pulled out my phone, and we started looking at a lot of the players that were there at the NBA Summer League, trying to make these NBA rosters, and I just started looking at a lot of the backstory on the players, and there were some fascinating things, and that led to us having more of a conversation, and then we were all connected and curious and having this conversation, so that was an example of turning to my values, and again, I even mentioned on that episode that if your value is not curiosity, and all of a sudden you're pulling out your phone, and you're trying to find something interesting about somebody, but you really don't care, then you're not going to feel like that worked for you. You're going to feel like, okay, what's wrong with me? Tony said that he pulls out his phone and looks at fascinating things about people, and then they all talk and laugh about the situation. That didn't work for me. Well, if that isn't one of your values, then that isn't going to work. But being able to identify what your core values are gives you something that you can turn to so that you can come back to the present moment and get out of the what's wrong with me story that our brain so often wants to tell us because our brain is so wired for that path of least resistance because it thinks that is the key to live forever. But man, bless your heart brain, that is not the case. One more core principle of ACT, that is committed action. Do what it takes, Russ said. Committed action means taking effective action guided by our values. I cannot stress that enough. He said this includes both physical action, what we do with our physical body, and psychological action, what we do in our inner world. It is all well and good to know our values, but it's only through putting them into action that life becomes rich and full and meaningful. And as we take this action, a wide range of thoughts and feelings will show up, some of them pleasurable and others will be painful. So committed action really does mean doing what it takes to live by our values, even when that brings up difficult thoughts and feelings. So committed action involves goal setting, but based off of our values, action planning, problem solving, skills training, behavioral activation, and exposure. And it can also include learning and applying any skill, he says, that enhances and enriches life. From negotiation and communication and assertiveness skills to self-soothing to crisis coping and mindfulness skills. So those are the six principles of ACT. And I hope that you can recognize that those, they have a lot of tools that are going to help bring you back to the present moment help you accept that your thoughts and feelings and emotions you have are there because you are a human being and you're just trying to live life the best you can. But how it cannot work when you become so hooked or fused 
to these stories that our brain tells us of what's wrong with me or why can't I just change my thought or why didn't that work or instead of just being able to notice those things, just noticing that I'm thinking, noticing that I'm feeling and then dropping the rope of the tug of war on the what's wrong with me story over and over again so that you can come back to the present moment and take action on things that be able to determine what your values are and realize that if you um, are trying to follow the values that your parents have given you, your church has given you, your community has given you, then those are wonderful uh, places to start. But this is your journey. You're only going around this planet, I didn't say one time, but we're going around several times. But you're going through life one time. And so it is imperative, important that you discover what matters to you. What matters to you is based on all the experiences you've been through, your nature, your nurture, your birth order, your DNA, abandonment, rejection, hopes, dreams, all of it. And so the quicker and easy and faster you can come to a place of acceptance of the things that matter to you and start to notice that your mind is thinking and feeling and doing all of those things and just notice them and learn how to step back, self in this context and say, check it out. I'm noticing that I am uh, feeling angry. I'm noticing that I'm feeling stressed. That's fascinating. That's interesting. And not giving it that negative emotional charge, which goes back to that article we started with, where that is part of the problem of that the harder we are trying to be happy, the more frustrating the whole process can become versus just being able to learn to be who we are. What makes you tick based on all the things that you've been through in your life and find those things that matter to you and then take action on those things that matter. And that truly is this path toward a life well lived. I have run out of time. So we will talk about the, the choice point, which check it out that someday I will talk about choice point. We'll do that next week and I'll give, I'll give the choice point more than just a couple of minutes at the end of an episode. But I hope that you learned something today, the principles of acceptance and commitment therapy that you are the only version of you. And that is an amazing, wonderful, awesome thing. And so I challenge you throughout the next week to try to take on some of these principles of acceptance and commitment therapy. And we'll be back next week and we'll talk more about the concept of choice point. And that is going to be a game changer. All right, maybe we'll put your entire life-changing experience. Uh, we'll, we'll, we got part of it today. We'll get the next part next week. And I will see you next time on The Virtual Couch. Compressed emotions flying past Our heads and out the other end the pressures of the daily grind